kids grades three and under can be dismissed now for their scripture lesson if you'd like, and the rest of us can take our seats. I hope you do have your Bibles with you this morning, and that perhaps you may have already turned to the passage that Nevaeh read for us a moment ago, passage that you'll find on page 822 if you're using the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs. Matthew 16, 21 through 28 is our text for today. One of the greatest hymns to come out of the early 1900s is the hymn titled The Old Rugged Cross. It's a hymn by George Bernard. And the chorus, some of you have heard, goes like this. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Bernard was writing here of clinging to the cross of Christ. And clinging to Christ's cross, figuratively of course, until his final day. The final verse of this hymn says this. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then... He'll call me someday to my home, far away where his glory forever I'll share. George Bernard speaks in this poem that has been sung by Christians for many years since of clinging to the cross while waiting for the day when the cross will be replaced, as it were, with a crown. And that's actually a notion that we just sang about a moment ago, when we said these words, beneath the cross of Jesus, the path before the crown. We follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. The footsteps of Christ that led to a cross that then led to glory. And I think the old rugged cross and beneath the cross of Jesus both illustrate well the message of our biblical text before us. It's a message that frankly is a bit confrontational and a bit painful and definitely at least a little bit unexpected. And at the end of 2021 when I started this series in Matthew's Gospel, this is one of the passages that I had in mind when considering what to name a series that was going to take at least a, a couple or a few years. And the name I settled on, as you know, it's on the slides every week, is The Unexpected Kingdom. And part of why I wanted to call it The Unexpected Kingdom is largely due to the fact that so much of what King Jesus said and did during his earthly ministry seemed to the people around him unexpected. And not only that, but the unexpected nature of Matthew's message as he wrote this gospel and compiling a narrative to explain the story of Jesus and his ministry to the people of the first century. And of course, passed down for the centuries since. 
Matthew was intending, as I've already said multiple times throughout our series, to convince the Jewish people who weren't convinced already or encourage those who were following Jesus that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah of God. The anointed one of Israel that had been foretold and anticipated for hundreds of years. And for Matthew to compile this narrative and present it in this way, in this gospel that we have before us today, included some things that would have been for his original readers in the first century rather unexpected. And of course, there's a modern application for us to the sense of the kingdom of God being inaugurated by Jesus in an unexpected fashion. The things that we've already seen in Matthew chapters 1 through 16 include several things that probably aren't how we would tend to think of the kingdom of God arriving. We too have some preconceived notions and assumptions about how the divine creator ought to exercise his reign and bring his will to pass and facilitate justice and righteousness in his world. And as it turns out, the people that Jesus originally spoke to and the Christians that this book was originally distributed to and the Christians in this very room and around us in our day can all relate to at least one specific person who had a hard time understanding the message of this Christ, that the way to glory with Christ is the way of a cross. Simon Peter is a favorite Bible character for a lot of people, both Christian and non-Christian. He's quite relatable in that he often puts his foot in his mouth, acts emotionally, responds too quickly, gets himself into trouble now and then. In reality, Saint Peter doesn't act very saintly sometimes, and we appreciate that because neither do we, and so we can relate to him. And I suspect that if you think of Simon Peter, and you think of him getting in trouble, your mind would probably go first to his thrice denial of Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. Maybe after that, your mind goes to the problematic position of hypocrisy that Peter took in the Galatian church years later that Paul records in his letter to the Galatians. And maybe you even think of Peter drawing his sword and slicing off the ear of one of the high priest's servants as Jesus was being arrested in Gethsemane. And each one of these things was truly troublesome in their own ways. But in the passage that we have before us today, there is another seriously troublesome decision on Peter's part. In this interaction that Matthew records for us, we see Peter uttering words that have our Lord taking a posture toward Peter and replying verbally to him in a way that is extremely severe. And it's all related to Peter's response to Jesus' teaching about the way to glory being the way of a cross. Read these first few verses of our text with me again, verses 21 through 23. From that time, 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus again, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Apparently, Peter was not a fan of what Jesus had been saying. And apparently, Jesus was not a fan of Peter's response. Here's what's going on here. This opening phrase, from that time, is simply a statement that basically means that at that point in his ministry, Jesus began to reveal some more information with his disciples about what was going to happen and share it with them in an ongoing fashion in some way. We don't have a record in Matthew's writing here of some of the exact verbiage that Jesus used in each of those instances, but we do have the indication that from that time, Jesus began to explain what was coming. He began to show his disciples these things, and these things did not seem to jive with what had just been discussed in the previous verses. Because wasn't it just in the previous passage that Peter had this glorious confession about Jesus? Look back just a few verses to verses 15 and 16. Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter had rightly affirmed that their rabbi, Jesus, was the actual Messiah of God, the actual anointed one, the chosen one of Israel, God's son. And Jesus, in the verses that followed, had responded with words of delight and words of affirmation and blessing. And so things were great. Peter seems to have graduated, you might say, from entry-level disciple to apostle, now in the passage preceding our text for today, to the rock on which I will build my church. And things were good. And maybe Peter, just like we might, could have begun to get a little bit of a big head about his enlightened state. After all, Jesus had just basically said that he, Peter, seemed to have a more full and accurate sense of who he was and what his mission was than many others. And so the text doesn't tell us this, but it's certainly possible with a man like Peter and what we know about him that pride might have begun to well up within him and emboldening him to dare to rebuke the master. Thus, soliciting Jesus's hard and harsh response. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly possible. What we do know is that what Jesus said right after this interaction between Peter and our Lord in our previous text was something that offended Peter. And it seems to have been offensive because of what was at the heart of that message. And the heart of that message being that the path of that Christ, the Christ that he had just confessed and affirmed being a path that Peter did not expect. What Jesus speaks of in this text are what I'm calling 
unexpected kingdom formulas, and I think there are at least three in this passage, the first of which comes from these first three verses that we've read, where we see that life in the kingdom includes defeat leading to victory. What Jesus began to show his disciples in these verses is something totally counterintuitive to natural human sensibilities. Jesus' path to messianic success, to savior victory, to kingly reign in his work was a path that was going to lead to suffering and death. And in a way at least at that point, to seeming defeat. And of course, from our vantage point in redemptive history, we know that his suffering and death was not a defeat at all. In fact, it was on that cross that a great victory was won as Jesus atoned for the sins of his people. But from their vantage point, at that moment when Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer... Hearing Jesus say that would have been totally unexpected and counterintuitive. Because how could it be that the conquering Son of God, the Messiah, who we've waited for, would suffer and die? Would be defeated? That's where Peter's coming from as he rebukes Jesus. It's really a fascinating study in what is being said here, and it's a bit cringy, frankly, what Peter is saying here. You could translate Peter's words, and if you're using an ESV like I am, you see him in the middle of verse 22 say, far be it from you, Lord. And if you have an ESV like I do, you might have a little note at the end of that phrase that takes you down to the end of your page that says, or may God be merciful to you, Lord. And perhaps you have a version that says that very thing. Jesus says these things, and Peter says, May God be merciful to you. Far be it from you, Lord. It comes across a bit condescending. Almost as if Peter is saying, Oh, no, don't say such things. That won't happen to you. I can imagine, again, we don't know that this happened, but in my mind's eye, I just imagine Peter putting a hand on Jesus' shoulder and turning him away from the group to rebuke him in a hushed tone. Whoa, 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 we can't talk like that. You're the Messiah. We're winners, not losers. We're going to succeed, not fail. Ours is a position of strength and power and success, not weakness. Kind of reminds you of where some of the messages of so-called evangelical Christianity are today. The, The rather comfy message that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or the prosperity gospel heresy that says what God wants most for you is to be happy. And that suffering and struggle and sickness is not what God wants for you. God wants victory. Or even a political inclination that would rally around the need for Christian power to dominate our country and how a vote for so-and-so will lead to the restoration of Christianity's position of political power. 
It's all very similar to what Peter and many other Jews wanted from their Christ, isn't it? And isn't it interesting and a bit comforting to us who have the same human flesh that Peter had, that not long after Simon Peter was commended for his accurate and powerful confession of Christ, he finds himself in a place of stark correction and rebuke. From commendation to correction, from blessing to backlash. Boy, that feels like the story of my life. How many times it seems like I've had some sort of stretch of obedience to the Lord, or purity of thought, trust in God, loving speech to my family, only to find myself derailed merely a day or two later. Can you relate to this? I think we can all relate to Peter and the situation that he finds himself in. It's in verse 16 that he makes this glorious confession of who Jesus is, and it's only a few verses later in 22 that he makes this horrible statement rebuking Jesus. And look again at verse 23 to how Jesus responds. Jesus turns and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. What words to hear from our Lord. What a sharp rebuke. You know that is the exact sentiment that Jesus expressed to the actual Satan when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Turn to Matthew 4. We're not going to read much of this, but you can look at your, you can just look at the pages in front of you and see, be refreshed perhaps what I'm talking about. We looked at this a long time ago when we started. This would probably have been at the beginning of 2022. You remember what was at the heart of the devil's temptation of Jesus in this passage? The heart of the devil's temptation of Jesus was to avoid the path of suffering and death that, the, that his father had Jesus headed down and to skip straight to the glory. Temptation number one. Verse 3, he essentially says, skip the hunger, stop the suffering, use your glorious power and get what you deserve. Temptation number 2, starting in verse 5 and into verse 6, he essentially says, force your father to put on a glorious display of how much he loves you and show everyone who you are right away. Temptation 3 in the verses that follow in verse 8 and 9. Where essentially Satan says, you can have glory from all the nations here and now without any of the path of painful patience. And how does Jesus end his encounter with the devil? In verse 10 of Matthew 4, be gone, Satan. In essence, what he's saying to Peter in Matthew 16. 23, back in Matthew 16, verse 23, he says, Get behind me, you are a hindrance to me. In other words, you're in the way. You're in the way. That kind of mindset, those kinds of words are opposed in the way of where I'm going. So get out of the way with that kind of talk. 
And then in the second part of verse 23, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, what you say is the right way is not necessarily in sync with what God says is the right way. The problem is, Peter, you are not thinking the way that God wants you to think. You are thinking naturally. And so by saying these words to Peter, he was telling him that his words and the mindset and heart behind them were devilish, opposed to God. And here's why. Because the way to glory in the kingdom of God was the way and is the way of suffering. The way of God's Christ included God's plan for a cross. The Christ was prophesied to be a suffering servant, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the prophet Isaiah said. A suffering servant who then Jesus began to explain to his disciples would die. And of course that we know, having read the rest of Matthew before perhaps, a servant that would hang in shame on a cross as he bore the sins of his people. This is a far cry from prancing into the city on a white horse adorned in robes and using his divine power to zap away the Romans and purify the Jewish people. But that would have been more of what Peter had in mind. That would have been more like what we have in mind now. We want our lives in Christianity to be all victory and no defeat. And friends, I don't mean that victory over our sin is something not to strive for. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I mean is that our problem is that we don't want there to be any perceived setbacks when it comes to life in the kingdom. We don't want any roadblocks. We don't even want an ounce of the feeling that there is any kind of success on the part of the enemy. We want prominence, not insignificance. We want to crusade against the infidels and reclaim the city of God. We don't want COVID to put our church through some really hard things so that we can learn some really important lessons. We don't want our church to go through a split in 2021 just when it seemed like we were ready for a new building. No, we want to grow. We want victory. So we, like Peter, can become so obsessed with the pursuit of victory or what we think victory ought to look like that we forget that just as the way of the Christ is the way of a cross so it follows that his little Christs which is what Christian means is also the way of a cross and here's what I mean this is what Jesus says in verses 24 through the end of our text then Jesus told his disciples if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What Jesus does here is he goes on to teach his disciples and us along with them some 2,000 years later, that if you really want to know what, is, what it is to live the good life in the kingdom of God, you've got to actually let go of your desire for the good life in this life. Amen. And that's the second unexpected formula for kingdom life. Denial leading to blessing. God's plan for life in his kingdom is evidently a life centered on denial now that looks forwards to the blessings to come. And boy, does that hit hard for spoiled, materialistic, and entitled Westerners. Denial? I thought this whole thing was about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Doesn't sound like that. Not according to Jesus. I suspect, my dear fellow Americans, that we would be rather uncomfortable if Jesus was to stand before us in the flesh and speak with us verbally regarding how we're doing when it comes to setting our minds on the things of God. A silly illustration of this that I just saw the other day, a YouTube a commercial on YouTube for Lazy Boy recliners. It was silly. It was not meant to be taken seriously, and they were joking and saying these things. We are standing up for our right to be lazy. I'm exercising my right to let the dishes soak until tomorrow. I'll mow the lawn tomorrow-ish. It was just a joke. Don't, please don't go boycott Lazy Boy. My point is just that we chuckle at a commercial like that because we relate to it. We are so obsessed with our own happiness and comfort. And of course, my friends, there are many blessings from the Lord's hand that we do enjoy in this life, and we should enjoy them indulgently with great thanksgiving whenever we get the chance to do so. Oh, delight in your family. Enjoy the work that God gives your hands to do. Have some fun in God's creation. Watch a good film. Enjoy a fabulous meal. Be refreshed by a delightful beverage, all in thanksgiving to the Lord. But the point that Jesus is making here is that the path of life in the kingdom is not a path characterized by indulgence but of denial. Denial. Let that sink in, beloved friends. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is, of course, in part, referring to the moment in time when a person surrenders in their hearts to the rule of King Jesus, denying one's self-rule and accepting God's rule through Jesus by faith. But I think this is also referring to the surrender of one's ongoing life to the reign of King Jesus. In other words, saying the words of another 
hymn from the early 1900s. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments, my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. That's what Jesus is calling for here. Self-denial, letting go of self-rule, letting go of self-love for the sake of His love and loving Him in response. Now, at this point in Matthew's narrative, in the story that he is telling of the historical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. And so for Jesus to tell his disciples to deny themselves and take up a cross would have hit a bit differently for them than it does for us. You see, as 21st century Westerners who have been greatly influenced by Christianity in our culture, we think of crosses as specifically relating to Jesus' crucifixion. But at this point of history, that hadn't happened yet. And when Jesus began to explain to his disciples about how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, he actually didn't tell them in this text that it would be death on a cross. And so when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, the disciples didn't go, ah, yes, just like our Lord did on a literal cross, so too must we be willing to follow in his footsteps and be figuratively crucified every day in his service. No, they didn't think that way at all. To them, a cross was simply a barbaric, pagan, cruel instrument of torturous execution. Something to be turned away from and despised, not worn as jewelry or accepted and embraced as the means for the advance of the kingdom of God. And yet that is the exact image that Jesus uses when teaching his disciples about what it looks like to be on board with him. What it means to follow him. And of course, I suspect that Jesus was being intentionally prophetic about where his journey would end in this life. But even aside from his journey to a Roman cross, Jesus was saying something about the lives of his followers which is that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you have got to lay down your life. You have got to be willing to let go of whatever God might call you to let go of in order to be with him. Let me put it to you this way. You have got to be willing to set aside what you think it ought to mean to be you in order to gain what it means to be his. I'm going to say it one more time. You've got to be willing to set aside what you think it ought to mean to be you in order to gain what it means to be his. And I know this is really painful for some of you to hear. And please, my 
dear brothers and sisters, know that I love you, but we have got to hear and understand what our Lord is saying here because we are surrounded by messages of self-preservation, self-advancement, self-worth, self-esteem, self-love, self-self-self. And I have had the sad experience of watching some of my fellow Christians, once zealous for the kingdom of God and his church, drift into their own self-centered pursuits. The prospect of giving their children things that they never had just became too much to deny. The career climb that makes their family a lot of money though it could also have an adverse effect on how the family worships together, was just too good an opportunity to deny. And even family itself, though immensely important, becoming more important than Jesus and his kingdom. One's kids, one's spouse, one's family traditions. Too great to deny. And sometimes, in order to shepherd us back to the still waters and green pastures of the greater blessing of himself and his kingdom, our Lord takes us and graciously forces us into self-denial. Sometimes through great loss. Sometimes through painful trials. Sometimes through an excruciating path that feels like a veritable crucifixion. All in order that we might come face to face with the reality that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, all for the sake of the greater joy of being in Christ, being part of his kingdom. I know it is hard to receive this word from our Lord, but listen to me. What good is it to be physically healthy in this life just to lose it all on the day of judgment when you're determined to have never been truly his? What good would it be to have a healthy bank account and a good credit score if it comes at the cost of missing out on what it means to be spiritually rich? Oh, my friends, what I'm saying is beware the messages of self-preservation and self-love of our age. This life is not meant to be your best life. This version of the world is not your final destination if you are in Christ. So friend, don't obsess over how you feel at every given moment. Don't stress about tailoring your days towards self-preservation. And don't forsake the path of self-denial and a Christ-like cross in order to hold tightly to what you are destined to lose if you refuse to let it go. I can't help but wonder if that must have been at least somewhat behind what the great Jim Elliot said when he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Maybe you've never heard of Jim Elliott before. He was a missionary called to kingdom work in the earlier 1900s, the, the, the first half of the century, called to work in a primitive tribe of notoriously vicious indigenous people. And in 1956, Jim Elliott and his co-laborers were killed by the very tribesmen that they pursued making contact with in order to share the gospel with them. 
and a self-preserving mindset may look at Jim Elliott's story with disdain, maybe even pursed lips and a sideways glance and say, well, I could never do that. Or worse, my precious and cherished children had better never do that. But someone who truly understands the blessing of gaining Christ and his kingdom is willing to let everything and everyone go in order to possess and be possessed by King Jesus. And so before we move on, let me just ask, how might self-denial for the sake of the kingdom of God look for you? And if your mind immediately goes to the things that you really hope God doesn't ask you to let go of, it's probably a surefire indication that that's the very thing he wants you to be willing to let go of. He may not ask you to deny it, but he wants you to be willing to do so. Some examples could be that we could say, well, all I know is he better not take one of my children from me, whether in death or in ministry. Or maybe my sexual sin patterns aren't that bad. It's not really something I need to let go of. I can handle it. Or, but, but my career dreams are everything to me. Surely Jesus wouldn't ask me to let go of my dreams. He already went to a literal cross for me. Why do I have to bear a figurative cross for him? Or maybe my comfortable suburban American lifestyle is so ingrained in me, it just wouldn't go very well if I had to let that go. You see, my friends, the path of the Christ was a pathway to a cross. Jesus was literally walking a road to death. But... It was through his death that life came. And that is the third unexpected formula, kind of a summary of this whole passage, which is death leading to life. You see, at the end of this passage, Jesus speaks of a day when he, the Son of Man, as he often referred to himself in the Scriptures, would come in the glory of his Father. That's verse 27. Verses 27 and 28 are some more verses with some considerable debate regarding what exactly Jesus means. We saw a couple of those last week. But the point behind Jesus' words in this context is bigger than the debate about when Jesus is saying he's going to return and what exactly it's going to look like. And I'm going to address that only briefly in just a moment. But here's what I mean when I say Jesus had a bigger point. Remember what he says in verse 21? He's telling his disciples that he's going to suffer and be killed, and be raised. He said he would suffer and die, but he also said that he would be raised. And then, just a few verses later, Jesus speaks of a time when the full glory of the Father will be on display in him. And so he's saying then that his disciples in verse 28 would see it. In other words, Jesus was clearly saying that his death would not end with death. His death would lead to life. A seeming defeat would lead to victory. That self-denial that Jesus would exercise would lead to great blessing in coming in the glory of his Father. And certainly speaking of his own resurrection to life, to be sure, but also to the eternal life of all who will believe and trust in him as the Christ. Friends, I believe that's the bigger point 
that Jesus is making here in this text, even in these somewhat controversial verses, that his death would lead to eternal life. His path of a cross would lead to glory. Now, as it relates to verse 28, there are several views on what Jesus is talking about here when he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. One of the more common interpretations of this is that Jesus is referring to the event that takes place directly afterwards. And I am hesitant to disagree with any of these people who ever write commentaries because I'm not exactly about to write one myself. They are far more educated than I am. But it seems to me that that's not what Jesus is referring to here. They argue that since the transfiguration came next in Matthew's narrative, that it naturally fits that Matthew was just trying to bring us to that next thing that Jesus was talking about. And I could obviously be wrong, but if Jesus meant that, why would he say something so dramatic as some of you won't taste death until six days from now? Because that's what chapter 17, verse 1 says. It's after six days that they go and they do this thing. Again, I could be wrong, but it just doesn't seem to be a plain reading of the text to me. I also don't see how verse 28 could be referring to what some others say, which is that this is referring to the second coming of Jesus, which is still yet to come in our day. Because Jesus speaks plainly of something that would come before some of these very men died. And obviously the consummation of the kingdom of God has not taken place yet. So it seems to me that Jesus is referring to something later down the road than less than a week later, but not quite as far as the end of the age. It seems to me that Jesus is actually continuing his point here about self-denial, seeming defeat, and even death leading to blessing, victory, and life. And that what those disciples would see even in their lifetimes was their savior crucified and dead and buried but then resurrected and ascended and continuing his ministry through his holy spirit with this ongoing evidence even until their last day that christ was enthroned as king there are also a lot of really good points to be made about Jesus possibly referring to the fall of Jerusalem when he speaks of his judgment. And I got to be honest with you, I find that really compelling. I just can't help but wonder if a literal time constraint isn't as much what Jesus had on his mind as much as a broader spiritual point about death leading to life. That's just where I'm at on that. Because that's where all of this is heading. The risen Christ reigning in glory forever. The gentle and lowly Lamb of God laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin, but one day judging his enemies and doing so justly. You see, part of what Jesus is saying in verse 27 is that because he is also going to exercise his judgment as the Messiah, it is vital that you get on board with this whole self-denial thing now. Because if you're not on board with him now, you're going to wish you were when he returns to judge. And so if you are listening to me and reticent to get on board with Jesus, I plead with you, now is the time. Bow the knee to his rule and reign and deny yourself and follow him. It will be worth it in the end. 
But if you are listening to me and you are already his, in other words, you've already come to him in repentance and faith and you have been welcomed into his kingdom, remember, my friends, life as a follower of Jesus is a life filled with self-denial, with seeming defeat, or we might say setbacks, and certainly self-death. But, friends, remember, the real good life isn't all about this life. It's all about life with Jesus, both now as we serve Him and share in His suffering, and forever as we enjoy His presence in eternity. And it is that presence that we anticipate when we come to the Lord's table, as we do every first Sunday of the month. And it's His presence with us now through His Spirit that then calls us to come to the table in worship, in adoration, in thanksgiving, and even in confession. It is actually the very suffering and death of Jesus that we've just considered together for these last several minutes, minutes that we commemorate when we come to the table and take a, a very small piece of bread and a very small sip from the vine. We remember that his body was bruised and lashed and pierced for us and that his precious blood was shed for us. We remember that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. We remember that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our time at the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance. It is not a ritual that saves. It is not an exercise in somehow increasing our own holiness before God. But it is a practice that should not be undertaken lightly. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul speaks of eating and drinking in the practice of the communion ordinance in an unworthy manner, such as doing so when there's actually division between you and a brother or sister, or doing so while exercising a kind of favoritism towards some over others in the church, or coming to the table in an even blasphemous manner, abusing the fruit of the vine to the point of drunkenness. Rather, Paul says, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul goes on to say, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So as we always do, we're going to take just a few minutes to pray quietly and reflect and meditate in response to the preaching of God's word. But as we do on this communion Sunday, let's also take heed to Paul's words and examine ourselves and then eat the bread and drink of the cup the cup. So after a few moments of quiet prayer, we'll sing together and then we'll be led in prayer by two of our brothers as we take the bread and then the cup together. Let's go to prayer.